You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the April 1990 murders of a beloved husband and wife and their unborn child at the hands of a ruthless teen killer in a small but upscale community. The family's tragic murder shocked the community and devastated their friends and families. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash themurdermyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters, and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. In the very last episode of 2022, we covered the case of 16-year-old William Jenkins, who was shot to death during a robbery, and we were joined by William's father, Bill. As it turned out, Bill met his wife Jennifer at an event for survivors of murder victims. She too had experienced a horrific loss. Jennifer's sister, Nancy Langert, and her brother-in-law, Richard Langert, along with their unborn baby, were killed in their townhouse in 1990 by a ruthless teenager with a gun. In this first episode of 2023, we'll be discussing the Langert family murders. Nancy Ellen Bishop was born on May 14, 1964, in Winneka, Illinois, to Lee and Joyce Bishop. She was the youngest of three girls and always made her older sisters, Jennifer and Jean, laugh. She had excellent grades at New Trier High School in Winneka, Illinois. 
Winnetka was a mid to upper class neighborhood with a population of 12,000 people. It was quiet and safe, and residents there liked it that way. Nancy graduated from high school in 1982. She was outgoing and bubbly, the life of the party. She liked acting and entertaining, but she dreamed of love and having a family. Nancy met her soulmate, Richard Langer, and the two became inseparable. Richard was born on November 22, 1959, to parents Robert and Dolores Langer, and he grew up in Chicago not far from Nancy and Winnetka. He attended Brother Rice High School there. Richard was more reserved and serious than Nancy, but their chemistry was undeniable, and in May 1987, the couple got married. They made their home in Winnetka and hoped to start a family, and by 1990, they were overjoyed to find out Nancy was pregnant. Nancy and Richard's home needed some work, so while it was being done, they stayed in a townhouse that Nancy's family owned until their home was ready to welcome a family of three. The young couple was excited for their future, but sadly, tragedy would strike shattering their hopes and dreams. On April 7, 1990, the whole family went out to eat in Chicago to celebrate Nancy's father, Lee's birthday, as well as the upcoming arrival of the newest family member. Nancy was three months pregnant at the time. After the dinner, Richard and Nancy dropped off her parents at their home at around 10.30 p.m. and went back to their townhouse. The next day, Lee arrived at the townhouse, and when he rang the doorbell, he got no answer, so he went inside. The basement light was on, and he headed to the basement stairs, and that's when he made a gruesome and shocking discovery. Nancy and Richard were both dead in a pool of blood. They had been shot to death. Horrified, Lee tried to compose himself and went to call police. Detectives arrived and began to survey the crime scene. Richard's hands had been secured behind him with handcuffs. He was shot once in the back of the head, execution style. Nancy was shot twice, once in her abdomen and once in the chest. The gunshots to Nancy had killed her unborn child instantly. But it was clear to police from evidence at the scene that Nancy had crawled to Richard's body after being shot, and she laid down next to him. There was a heart in the letter U, a final love you, to Richard written by Nancy in her own blood. Police wondered what the motive here was. It was clearly no robbery. Valuable electronics, jewelry, and even cash were left behind and out in the open. The sliding back patio door had pieces of glass carefully cut out of it. The pieces were in a pile on the doormat. There was one glove near the back fence, and beyond the fence there was a bike trail. Police felt that the killer may have used it to make his escape. Both Nancy's and Richard's families were devastated by the murders. They had no idea who would want to hurt Nancy and Richard, or why. News of the murders of the beloved couple and their unborn baby rocked the community, and police desperately sought the killer. But an arrest didn't come quickly. In October 1990, six months after the murders, two students at New Trier High School walked into the Winnetka Police Department lobby and asked for witness protection. One student, named Fu Huang, a senior and his girlfriend were there to report that their friend, 16-year-old David Barrow, was responsible for the Langert murders. Barrow lived just down the street from the Langert's townhome, and the bike path went right between the two homes. Fu Huang told authorities that Barrow had shown him a gun, and he was worried that Barrow would shoot more people if he wasn't stopped. At first, investigators thought that Barrow was just bragging to friends about a crime he didn't commit, 
But the tipster gave police a piece of information that they hadn't revealed to the public yet. A stray bullet had been found on the wall right above the baseboard on the first floor, and Barrow had told Fu that he accidentally popped off around because he had been nervous committing the crime. Authorities searching Barrow's home found a padlock on his bedroom door. Inside was the murder weapon, a stolen 357 Magnum, as well as a pair of handcuffs similar to the pair left on Richard. Also in Barrow's bedroom was a glass cutter and a scrapbook of articles about the Langrip murders. Although DNA used by police was still in its infancy, Barrow's blood type matched the blood type of the DNA found on the glove by the back fence. Barrow pleaded not guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and one count of intentional homicide of an unborn child, burglary, and home invasion. A look into his background revealed a history of trouble. When he was just 14 years old, he was sent to a juvenile psychiatric facility after he tried to poison his family by putting something like antifreeze in their milk. After just two months, his parents took him home against the recommendations of doctors, and when he was released, they put in writing that it was still believed by staff that he was dangerous to himself or others. David Barrow was given two mandatory life sentences, one for the murder of Nancy and one for the murder of Richard, as well as a third discretionary life sentence for the intentional homicide of the Langert's unborn baby. Barrow maintained his innocence until 2012, That's when he responded to a letter from Nancy's sister, Jean Bishop. She had written him, hoping for answers. He wrote back to her, I think the time has come for me to drop the charade and finally be honest. I am guilty of killing your sister, Nancy, and her husband, Richard. I also want to take this opportunity to express my deepest condolences and apologize to you. That same year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that mandatory life sentences for juveniles were unconstitutional. So if Biro was in prison for the rest of his life on those charges, he might one day be set free. But the discretionary life sentence was something that he couldn't get out of, and he remains behind bars today. It seems that Nancy's sisters, Jean and Jennifer, have different views about David Biro. Jennifer said to CBS News that he is someone for whom permanent separation from the rest of society is sadly necessary. But Jean added, does he deserve another chance? Yes, I think he does. In 2015, Jean wrote a book called Change of Heart about her process of forgiveness. That same year, a judge rejected Biro's appeal regarding his life sentence for intentional homicide because it was a discretionary sentence, not a mandatory life sentence, and thus it wasn't subject to the 2012 Supreme Court ruling. In April 2022, Biro's fourth resentencing appeal was denied by Judge Mary Brosnahan. And David Barrow, who will turn 49 this year, is currently incarcerated at the Pontiac Correctional Center. Joyce and Lee Bishop later moved into their townhome, despite knowing what happened in the basement to their daughter, their son-in-law, and their unborn grandchild. Joyce told CBS News, I think that being here almost makes me feel like, well, Nancy and Richard were here, and that's nice, too. She tried to think of how they lived, not how they died. Nancy's father, Lee, passed away at the age of 73 in November 2003. He was haunted to the very end about finding his daughter dead. And all these years later, Nancy's two surviving sisters seem to be at two different places in regards to their thinking about Biro. While Jean seems to want to give him a second chance, Jennifer is fighting to make sure he stays locked up. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, and in the last episode, Jennifer found her husband, Bill Jenkins, family tragedies, 
and together they both do some wonderful work and help people get through the most unimaginable situations. I sat down to talk with Jennifer about that work, as well as the senseless murders of Nancy, Richard, and their unborn baby over three decades ago. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Jennifer, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss a very tragic case, and this is the murder of three of your family members. Yeah, thank you, Mike, so much for having me on, and thank you so much for what you do for victims' families by uh, this wonderful podcast series of yours. Well, thank you for sharing your story, and we'll get to it uh, later. Your husband, Bill, was also recently on and shared his own uh, tragic story. And yours is is one that may be a first, because I don't know if anyone that I've had on has lost three members of their family. You lost your sister, Nancy, uh, her husband, your brother-in-law, Richard, and their unborn baby during a violent encounter in their home in 1990. Um, Before we get into the details of what happened exactly, can you tell us a little bit about Nancy and Richard and maybe share some of your memories of of them and who they were? Oh, yes, indeed. Nancy Bishop Langert, my uh, my youngest sister, um, she was uh, she, she was the youngest of the, of the three daughters in our family. And uh, she was born in 1964. And, you know, so, you know, you can tell what age she would have been by now. Um, but she was the vivacious one. She was beautiful, for one thing. She was talented. She was an extroverted, talented. She could sing. She could act. By the time that she was in um, college and and afterwards, um, she was doing uh, professional theater. She got the lead in, you know, she went to New Trier High School in the suburban Chicago area, which is a high school that's graduated people like um, Donald Sutherland and Anne Margaret and Charlton Heston and, you know, like a ton of famous actors. Um, and uh, a lot of fine arts, wonderful fine arts education there. And she was the lead, Maria in West Side Story, her senior year, and it just kind of went up from there. She was an incredible talent, and um, the most, you know, she was the funny one at the dinner table, and she was the, you know, she would do impersonations of, you know, like uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, and she would you know, just she would always have everybody in stitches, and um, she was just a love. And and this is one of the things that's so hard about it, because like of all the people in the world to to target or to kill, and and you know, it turns out, I mean, they really weren't targeted except other for the, than their location. Um, but you know, of all the people to lose, you know, somebody that was giving so much was cooking for people that had lost somebody or, you know, or, or the, where somebody was sick. This is, she was a do-gooder. She was a people person. She was talented. She was really, um, you know, it, how could you, how could you kill that? I just, this is the part that just kills us, of course. And her husband, Richard, was this rock of a guy. Like you don't meet many men that were as, I don't know, sort of gallant at a young age. Um, he was, you know, uh, a strong, uh, uh, athletic, good-looking man, uh, hardworking. Uh, he, to me, he was like 
10 years older than he really was because he was so, you know, work, good work ethic, very devoted in, in his relationships. He was the quieter of the two of them, but he was definitely, they just adored each other. They had a really good marriage. They really worked at it. They, they, they took care of each other. You could see that in their marriage. And um, they were expecting their first baby, and they were so excited about that. And they had, you know, just bought their first house. They hadn't moved into it, but they were making all these plans. I mean, their life was going so well. They both had good jobs, and they were in their, you know, late late twenties. And she was twenty five, and he was twenty nine, and everything was going their way. They were really at the happiest time in their life, and it just, it, it's just devastating. This is should have been a good time and, and lots of good things ahead for them. And this is something that I imagine no one saw coming. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a completely random, um, we, as far as we know, um, they, you know, and the killer has since finally, 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 many, 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 many years later, finally confessed, um, from prison where he was already serving life. But, um, he has already, um, you know, admitted that, you know, he just was, you know, trying to do something. Basically, their their condominium that they were living in was directly across the street from the Winnetka, Illinois police station. Winnetka is a suburb about 22 miles north of Chicago. And um, they were living in this townhouse. And and uh, but it, their back, the back porch of their of their condo looked directly across the street into the entrance of the Winnetka police station. And that's apparently why they were targeted. So how long had uh, the two of them been married? Three years okay. and um, three happy years, but they'd been dating for like eight years. Okay. And they were expecting their first child. How far along uh, was Nancy? She was like in the three and a half to four months, almost, you know, maybe three and a half months, uh, enough so that there was, um, they'd already done the heartbeat. They'd already heard the heartbeat. And she was just beginning to show a little bit. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it, there was already, you know, speculation about names. It was far enough along that, you know, we were really, the, the baby was already a real person to us as our family. That's the time when young couple is excited. They're starting to shop and make, uh, you know, yep. lists together for, for baby showers and stuff like that. And, um, this yeah. tragic tragedy comes along. Um, and up to that point living in Winneka, had they ever had any problems, any run-ins with people? What's that area like in general? No. Oh, oh, so, well, Winneka, Illinois is, um, very high end suburb. Um, they, you know, they weren't, they weren't wealthy, um, but they were, um, you know, my father was a corporate attorney and we had a, we had a nice home in, in this nice suburb. And no, it's a very high end neighborhood with, with very, you know, excellent schools and houses that, you know, now can range from, you know, half million to millions. Um, some of the ones that are closer to the lake, lakefront, the, uh, Lake Michigan's, you know, that part of Winnetka is, is very, very high end. So a good area where this kind of thing isn't something you're going to expect to happen. Except that in 1987, in the same town, a woman named Lori Dan, who made national headlines, had killed, uh, had gone on a shooting spree. She was mentally ill. 
Uh, she was a schizophrenic who was off of her medication, but there was a movie made about her starring Valerie Bertinelli, and some people have heard of the Lori Dan murders. And this this apparently was part of the scenario that got the young offender in our case interested in that kind of quote-unquote celebrity um, was the national attention that the Lori Dan shooting where she broke into a school and held a second-grade classroom hostage and killed a second-grader and... It was awful. And we'll get to the, um, you know, the motivations a little bit more and, and some of that stuff. But c- can you sort of walk us through how things unfolded as far as you know, as far as the police were able to establish what happened on that day in April 1990? Right. So it was a Saturday night. And um, the family had all been out. Not me. I was a, a school teacher that was away on retreat with my students and um but um my other sister jean and my mother and father had all been at, and nancy and richard had all been out to dinner celebrating my father's birthday it was his 60th birthday and when they um all went to their separate households and you know said good night to each other um, um so it was maybe we think 10:30 on a Saturday night. They'd gone downtown to the city of Chicago for a nice restaurant for a nice birthday dinner out. Um, Nancy and Richard went back to their condo and um, uh, you know walked into their uh, into their home, and there was um, a man sitting there um, in one of their pieces of furniture, sitting in a chair, um, and he was all dressed in black, um, holding a 357 Magnum. He was actually dressed in a black trench coat, a black knit cap, black boots, black leather gloves, um, um, black pants. Um, I don't know if you know about the black trench coat mafia thing that the trench coat mafia thing that came into the Columbine shooters minds was inspired apparently by our guy, uh, which had been um, before Columbine, a little bit before the Columbine massacre. Um, So, he was dressed like an assassin, though. I mean, he he was very consciously dressed that way. And um, he uh, confronted them. They thought that um, he held them at gunpoint. Um, he threatened to kill them immediately. Um, Nancy had just cashed her uh, paycheck. She actually had like $500 in her purse, which is very rare. And she thought that they were being robbed, and she said, look, I've just cashed my paycheck. Look, I've got $500 here. Cash, please just take this. Take jewelry. Take anything you want. Just take it and go. Um, we won't, you know, we won't bother you. Get Just take whatever you want. And he said, no, that's not why I've come. And he um, ultimately marched them down at gunpoint to the basement. When she told him she was pregnant, he apparently reported later having a, a you know, a little bit of a second thought about it. And he told them to go down in the basement and then he would leave. Uh, and by the way, if I can just say, Mike, at this moment, there's a couple of rules if you're ever confronted in a criminal situation. And one of them is, and there's some great people that like J.J. Bittenbinder and people like that that teach, you know, crime prevention if you're ever a victim. And one of the rules is you never let the the guy with the gun move you to location B because location B is where you're going to, you know, where you're going to end up dead. Um, heard you make your stand wherever, 
wherever you're at at that moment. Either that or you just scream and run. Like, you try to actually act quicker. And, you know, of course, they were already inside their apartment. It would have been hard to to outrun him at that point. But Mm. it is, yeah, that is a safety rule. You just, you know, location B is always going to be worse than location A. So, uh, but back to the, um, he did, um, they, they cooperated. They thought that that would be a way out. And they went down to the basement, and when he got down to the bottom of the basement stairs, um, he was holding the 357 Magnum handgun at um, point blank at the back of Richard's head. He fired and quite literally blew his brains out. And um, Nancy had to watch his head explode. And it was, um, you know, that's the part that I just, I, 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 if I, if there's anything that I can't, cope with it's the uh, the thoughts of what her final minutes were like of her life um to see this horrible and then to know that this was coming for you and um she collapsed to the basement floor and crossed her arms over her pregnant belly and said please don't kill me please don't kill my baby and the killer actually aimed for the baby and this of course cost him later in terms of a third life sentence but he actually aimed for her pregnant belly and fired and then shot her again in the chest. And it was so devastating. But just to tell you how directly he targeted that baby. uh, Later during the autopsy, we actually asked the Cook County medical examiner to go in and try to determine the gender of the baby because we knew the boy and girl names that she had picked out. We wanted to bury the baby with its name. And this was before DNA, of course. This was in 1990. We didn't have, you know, a DNA match where we could tell things like that. And so we just, they just had to visually go in and look. And when the medical examiner during the autopsy went in and looked to see if he could determine the gender of the child, uh, the killer had used disruptor bullets, which are the ones that just do horrific damage inside. He had used with disruptor bullets and a 357 Magnum, he had hit the baby directly and exploded it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's this terrible crime scene. When did your family, who in your family first realize something was amiss and, and something had happened? The next day, um, Sunday, um, they my father was supposed to do something with Richard in terms of a car or something and couldn't get him on the phone. And he went over there to find him and to find them and saw the cars parked out front and, you know, immediately got worried. Um, and he went in to the condo and he... Um, he he saw, you know, a, a bit of a mess and he went downstairs and he found them. And I want to say one more thing about what he found. Uh, and that is that after Nancy had uh, been shot twice, she didn't die immediately. She apparently lived for a few minutes and was trying to pull herself over to her husband near him. Um, the last thing she did before she died was she took her hand in her own blood and as she was weakening, she drew a message on the floor of the basement and it was a heart and a you drawn in her own blood and that we found her, my father found her laying there having left this 
message in blood, very clearly, a heart and a you, love you. No. And it was just, you know, to know that that's what she did with the last ounce of life in her body, that's who she was. To the mm-hmm. very, very end of her 25-year-old beautiful life, she let her last word on life be how much she loved her husband mm-hmm. and uh, loved life. And that's what my father walked in and found. And, of course, he was devastated, and he called the police, and the police came, and it was just... I can't even, can't even imagine what he, what that shock did to him, and I'm sure he lived with that his entire life. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't do well with that. All I can say is, I mean, my father died of cancer way too young at the age of 73, um, just, uh, you know, some years after that, and... Um, he was never really okay afterwards. He really never was. Mm. How did your family get this terrible, shocking news? I'm, this has got to be devastating to hear this. What did the police tell you? Did they have any leads? Did they, how quickly did they come, you know, discover this guy, Bureau? Um, not for a long time. Um, first of all, when we, um, I had been away on retreat with my high school students that weekend. So when I walked in the door to my house, and remember, this was before cell phones and all that. So um, as soon as I walked in the door to my house Sunday evening, when I got back, um, my, the phone was ringing and ringing, and it was my mother. And um, the, my mother and father both got on the extension, and they said, um, uh, are you sitting down? And I said, no. And they said, please sit down. And so I sat down on the couch, and I said, okay, what's up? And then they told me the news that Nancy and Richard had been found murdered. And I, I can't even tell you that, you know, just like you, you've, you've, I'm sure Mike heard it all in terms of the descriptions of how people, you know, the shock, uh, you just feel like your, you know, your internal organs are falling to the, to the core of the earth. And you just, um, you know, it was just devastating. But then um, they very carefully told me to, pack a bag and come home immediately, come up there. And so when we got there, Sunday night um, when I, I got there, um, the police were there with my parents in the, and my other sister in the, um, in, in the living room of the, of the condominium there. And we were talking through all of the, um, actually, no, it was in their, in, in their living room, in their home. We were talking in my parents' home. We were talking through all of the, you know, just um, questions, but they they asked us if we knew anybody that would want to hurt them, uh, but we really didn't have any clues. You know, there were there really was not any evidence of who it could have been, and then you know it, it was absolutely, um, you know, we were all trying to scramble in our minds like who could have done this? Like why would anybody do this? Because they didn't have any enemies. They were the nicest people. They had nothing but good friends and a, and a great life and very positive people. And so we were just really, and, and yet it looked like they were targeted, which, you know, of course they weren't other than for their location. So it's just, um, it, was a, it was shock. I think we were all just in shock. But obviously we worked with them, you know, for many months afterwards. Uh, we had to go through every single person that had ever been called from their phones, and we had to, you know, uh, 
everybody got interviewed, their employers and their friends, everybody got interviewed. And, uh, you know, even people that, um, you know, Nancy had babysat for people and stuff. I mean, it's just like, you know, it was a very exhaustive investigation and it was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune and in the top of the news for, and it made national news. And it was, this went on for six months, not knowing who did it and why and nothing. I mean, they had nothing other than the bullets that were in the body. And, you know, because the, the killer was wearing gloves, there was no fingerprint evidence or anything like that. And of course this was before DNA. So it was, um, and there was a glove that came off on the fence behind their property at the scene, which did later help us in court. But it was ultimately what led to the actual uh, arrest was that the killer, who was a, a, a high school student at a local at the local high school, New Trier High School, um, uh, he the killer was bragging of course, and joking about it and talking about it a lot. And, um, you know, one uh, very brave young student finally um, went to the police and said, you know, he talks about it a lot, and I think you should look into this guy. Well, they'd had other issues with him, and um, the high school student's name was David Biro, and uh, they went, they'd had other incidences with him, and they went to his house and executed a search warrant. They found a gun under his bed. Ballistics match was perfect to the murder scene, and then they arrested him. This is, what, six months later? Six months later. Wow. And obviously, news and arrest isn't going to bring your family back, but was there any kind of sense of, okay, now we can move on to the next chapter of what we do here? I think so, yes. Um, you know, at first we were all, because it, there had been no suspects, no, um, y you know, not much hope to cling to in terms of an answer. And so when we had, even after an arrest was made, we're still kind of waiting to see, is this really going to stick? Is this going to fall apart? Is there really something here? The worst part of it is that this young man was the son of a friend of my father's. Um, who lived two blocks away and with whom, you know, they used to socialize. My parents used to socialize with his parents. Oh. And it, and it, you mentioned that there there was no real targeting as far as, you know, if he didn't pick them out because he knew them in some way, he just picked out that location more or less? To this day, the best the best that we have is that because of their... Uh, there, there was this row of condominiums directly across the street from the Winneka police station. And he wanted to do it under, you know, look, look what I can do under your nose and get away with it. He, he thought he was this super brilliant serial killer. He had been studying and reading about serial killers. He'd read about Leopold and Loeb, the young men that want to commit the perfect crime. He had um, in his locked bedroom, um, there's a whole conversation we can have about bad bad parenting, uh, neglectful parenting, where parents had been warned with other many other incidences of him shooting uh, with BB guns, um, uh, him trying to you know kill other people, set a girl's sweater on fire at school, shot a, a, a second grader in the head with a BB gun, point blank rage in their front yard. Um, he had actually tried to poison uh, 
his own family. Just a few months before Nancy and Richard, he put uh, brought home some you know chemicals from his chemistry class at the high school, and put a whole bunch of um, poison in the family's milk, and you know they all got really sick. His mom had to go to the hospital. Um, you know they know, and and at that point he had been taken to a psychiatrist in Charter Barkley um, Psychiatric Adolescent Psychiatric Unit. And they evaluated him um, and said, this guy's dangerous. He's a, he's a sociopath. We need to, he's dangerous. We need to keep him in um, and ask the parents to sign off on that. And they had a meeting where David Biro and his parents and the siblings and medical professionals were all together in a room. And the siblings are begging, you know, the parents not to let him go. And the parents are kind of quiet and upset and worried. But in the end, you know, David Biro always manipulated his parents. And he just said, oh, school's about to start. I'm I'm going to be fine. You know, you need to uh, just let, you know, let's, I'll be okay. You guys keep an eye on me. You know, don't worry about it. You know, let me go home. I, want, I just want to get back to school, get back to normal. And, of course, the parents wanted to do that, too. But they had had already then multiple incidences uh, where, he had been seen to be dangerous, try, you know, was fascinated with guns, was shooting out people's car windows and tires and trying to hurt other people and trying to hurt them and being then diagnosed as a dangerous sociopath. And they still ignored that. And then only months later, Nancy and Richard are dead. So we sued the parents later as part of our wrongful death suit. And they were found to be culpable. Well, there, there are plenty of warning signs there. You know, it's it's not one of those cases where just out of the blue something happens and there's no background to say, hey, this was this was coming. It sounds like this. There was plenty of of stuff to indicate that. Yes. Mm. And, and so he get, gets into the court system. Obviously, he's a juvenile. Was he tried as an adult? Yes, he was because. Uh, at that time, he was um, four weeks shy of his 17th birthday. And in Illinois at that time in 1990, the um, uh, the uh, criminal adult age for violent felonies was 17, not 18. Uh, they've since raised it to 18. But it is um, he was so close uh, to being tried as an adult anyway. And you, you know how the laws are. You've, Mike, you, you talk to murder cases all the time. You know that... There is um, juvenile ages are set for the juvenile justice system all across the country. Every state is a little bit different, but every country in the world does this one thing, which is that it says that, you know, yeah, maybe 18 is, is the adult age, but hey, if they do something really calculated and really, really violent and really, really dangerous, and they're, you know, 16, um, they should be able to face criminal adult charges. Now, if they're, you know, 11 or 10, you know, or nine, there's probably going to be a different set of standards. But the laws are pretty universal around the world that there is a sort of a corridor between 15, 14, 15, and 18 that says, hey, you're old enough that if you do something really calculated and really awful, you're going to be tried as an adult. And he was tried as an adult, and um, uh, therefore the he got a mandatory life without parole, double life without parole sentence for killing Nancy and Richard. 
And was he all, and he was charged uh, with the death of their baby as well, correct? Yes. And what happened is that he was charged with home invasion, um, intentional homicide of an unborn child, and then the two first degree murders. And when the um, judge sentenced him to the two mandatory life without paroles, he kind of initially just assumed that that was the only sentencing that he needed to do. But a couple of years later, an appellate court, and thank God for this now because of what's happening with the Supreme Court and juvenile sentencing laws, thankfully, an appellate court directed the judge, the original trial court judge, to go back and um, do an additional sentencing for the baby. Um, Intentional homicide of an unborn child was a discretionary sentence, not mandatory. The judge could have chosen as little as 20 years or as much as another life without parole. And in fact, just a couple of years after the murder, uh, when the appellate process was going on, the judge went, it went back to the trial judge and the judge, the trial judge did sentence him to a third discretionary life sentence for the intentional homicide of the unborn child. And at that time, did a really good job of talking to him about why he deserved this other maximum sentence, about how he was young. But yes, he had all of these opportunities. He had this previous record where he had been offered psychiatric help. He had good caring parents. At least they were somewhat neglectful, but they were they were caring at least at the you know not bad people, um, maybe naive and too busy at their jobs. But they were, you know, he had a lot of things going for him: a good good life, good schools, you know, good friends, good family. And yet he chose to do this really evil thing, and he clearly had, if you look at his writings and his journaling, he was clearly a um, enthralled with evil personalities. He, he loved Charles Manson, and he idolized and would read about and study about, um, you know, criminal serial killers, which is why, of course, my heart is breaking just this week with the arrest of that um, Idaho uh, serial killer that uh, killed those college students at the University of Idaho, and they finally made an arrest after all these months in that case. Um, you know, they found a very similar profile. This is somebody who actually studied serial killers and found them fascinating and was, you know, actually getting a PhD in criminology in the case of this recent Idaho case. So it's it's really, there is a profile of people who are, even at a very young age, um, clearly uh, sociopathic or psychopathic. There is a book by uh, Dr. Robert Hare, called Without Conscience. And it was published, I don't know, 40 years ago, but it was the field of psychology and psychiatry that defined what a sociopath and what a psychopath are. And now there are, you know, there are tests that you can take and there are there are medical criteria. These are real legitimate medical diagnoses, a sociopath and a psychopath. But the sociopath is the person who simply just doesn't have a conscience. They don't feel anything for anybody else but for themselves. The only rush or thrill or emotion that they feel is if they do something to break the rules that makes them feel like, ooh, I got away with something. Um, These are not people who look at you, their fellow human being, and see, hey, a fellow human being, somebody who feels and who has a life and who has, you know, uh, they just, they don't see people as anything other than uh, objects for their own entertainment. And they are the most dangerous kinds of killers. 
because these are people who kill for the thrill of it. And sociopaths can start at a very, very young age. Um, you know, this is nothing to do with age. These people are going to always be dangerous because as this um, school of psychiatry has sort of defined, you can't, there's no pill, there's no therapy to grow somebody a conscience, uh, to cause them to feel, uh, you know, the humanity that people should feel between each other. Um, these people don't get better. They just don't. Missing that part of them that, that uh, the rest of us have. You know, I'm, I, and this is maybe a good segue because before we started recording, one thing you mentioned that was important was sort of this process or progression of, you know, an offender's age and, and the justice system. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and where your view is on that and what your, uh, you know, maybe then versus now? Yeah, that's, you know, this, what, what it has made me is incredibly well informed about um, what is uh, the, the, the separate process in the criminal justice system that the juvenile, uh, the victims of juvenile offenders go through. Um, if, the, if the offender goes through a juvenile justice system, the victim's rights are, are, are next to nil. But the juvenile justice system presumes at its structure, that the kids make mistakes and that they're fixable. They're still flexible enough. You know, they're still young enough. They're still, you know, they still have enough of their future bef before them, and they're not as responsible. They're not, you know, as able to understand long-term consequences. They're not. They don't have as uh, good of value judgments. So the juvenile justice system presumes that these people are just different and need more help and less punishment. And, um, it, and more privacy and more protection. And so it is much, much harder. Um, we were lucky that he was found to be a, an adult and, and treated as such. Um, but in uh, what has happened in the 30-plus years now since, since the murder took place um, is a tremendous, tremendously well-funded advocacy movement for juveniles who receive uh, life sentences for these. And we're talking about a handful, a, a, a small handful of, of, of offenders. But there is a juvenile life without parole sentences that have been given only 1,300 times in our nation's history, in our nation's modern history. Um, so about 1,000, this was a count that was done by Amnesty International and, and um, uh, that there's about 1,350 of juvenile, these juveniles who somewhere in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s got life without parole for a crime that they committed under the age of 18. And there was a, a big boost of money given to the juvenile justice reform movement by George Soros, who is a, a, a prominent international, um, everybody has probably heard of Soros uh, Foundation. Uh, I, I don't even know if Mr. Soros is still alive, but he was uh, a Hungarian socialist who believed in using his money for remaking the world in the, his, uto his utopian image. And part of his um, concern about the extremely overly punitive American criminal justice system, when you compare it to, say, Europe, for example, 
um, he looked at the number of uh, percentage of Americans, and I actually think he was quite right about this, which is that, you know, half the people in America's prisons were, were in prison for nonviolent offenses and significant people, significant numbers of people who were racial minorities were sentenced differently than people who were white and had uh, better lawyers or whatever. So there was a lot to be concerned about in terms of the need to reform the American criminal justice system. But he felt that the juvenile justice system was the one low-hanging fruit that he could throw some serious money at and try to make some reforms. And so that's what happened. He gave a billion with a B. That's a lot of money. Uh, he gave a billion dollars uh, to the juvenile justice reform movement, which felt like, well, the, the first most obvious thing is that we need to get a Supreme Court ruling that says that juvenile life sentences are not ever okay. And so that was the Miller v. Miller v. Alabama case. Um, that came in 2013, I think the ruling came down. And that ruling basically said you can't mandatorily give juveniles life without parole uh, unless uh, they have had a very specific kind of, um, uh, it, it can't be mandatory. It, it has to be a special finding that says that they absolutely need to do it. So, um, so their sen uh, the, the killer's sentences were suspended at that point, and that's when the sentence for the baby made such a difference because while we awaited his appeals uh, and his, um, uh, you know, attempts to get resentenced for killing Nancy and Richard, um, and we are still in that process now, 10 years later, we are still in that process, um, that he had the discretionary life sentence he received for the baby separately. So he has, he will still serve life without parole because he has a discretionary life sentence. He is trying to appeal the baby's sentence as well. That's why we've been in court with him now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in court. I'm the last member of my family that's um, still in, involved and engaged with this case. And, and um, my parents have both passed. Um, and my sister Jean is is not working for um, is not working to retain the sentence. My sister uh, Jean is actually working to gain early release for this offender. So uh, she's a defense attorney, and she's got her own audience for her own um, you know her own uh, view of things. Um, but she is uh, you know she's working to try to help him get a reduced sentence, and I'm. Um, the, the last person to carry out what was literally my father's deathbed wish, where he said to me, as he was dying of cancer, I spoke to him uh, just um, really an hour or so before he died, and I was the last person in the family to speak to him. And he said, promise me you take care of your mother. And I said, promise, Daddy. And I was crying, of course. And he said, promise me you will keep Mr. Biro in prison. And I said, I promise, Daddy. And so... That's been my life ever since then, and now we're still at it. We're still trying to appeal all of this, but it's been a nightmare. You just talked about a whole uh, variety of, of issues and, and things that are sort of pop out of the woodwork when, when you have a case like this. Um, I, I want to go sort of to where things stand to today. Obviously, 
Barrow's been in prison for a while. He's an adult. Has he ever shown remorse or, or, you know, admitted to anything that he didn't admit to earlier or anything at all that shows that he realizes that what he did was wrong, anything like that? So um, all I know is this one letter that he wrote conveniently, of course, after the Miller v. Alabama Supreme Court ruling in 2013 that said juveniles can't get a mandatory life sentence. Um, all of a sudden, my sister Jean gets a letter from Mr. Bureau that finally, after, and it had been, you know, what, they were killed in 1990. So it had already been like 23 some years since the murder that he finally wrote a letter and confessed to the crime and apologized. But Jean read the whole letter to us, my mother and I, at that point. And um, the the whole letter, it was several pages long. It was mostly about, oh, poor me, my horrible life in prison. I've had such a rough time here. Uh, yes, it's finally time for me to say I did it, and I'm sorry. And that was it. It was one sentence. Yes, I killed them, and I'm sorry. And then the whole rest of the letter was me, me, I, I, my poor life, my poor struggle, my, you know, how rough I've got it in prison. And, you know, so as Jean read us this letter, I just <laughs> sat there and looked at my mother and said, well, he's not sorry at all. Just doing what he needs to do on paper to make it look like he is. Exactly. And he was clearly, you know, he didn't do it until after the, the Miller v. Alabama Supreme Court ruling gave him, you know, a reason to finally confess to the crime. Hmm. Well, Ed, I want to segue a little bit to, you know, sort of a um, contradiction uh, to two different ends of the spectrum. So here you have this terrible person that committed this crime when he was 16, and then you wound up marrying your husband, Bill, who lost his 16-year-old son to uh, a violent murder in 1997. In fact, we covered uh, his son William's case uh, and spoke to Bill in episode 123. And I, I think it really demonstrates the duality of two completely 16-year-old different stories, one that committed a violent act and one that was a victim of a violent act. Uh, but you know, when you first reach out to me, you, you mentioned that you and uh, your husband, Bill, met at a conference for uh, murder victims, survivors. Yeah. Um, and since that time, you've both done a lot of work in this space of helping people and um, helping people get through these awful things. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you have done uh, alongside with yeah. Bill and, and sort of how, how has, that been, has that helped you heal at all in any way? You know, and I don't like to use the word healing because healing is a sort of a medical model that implies I had a sickness and now I'm over it. And in th th those are not correct descriptions, as I know you, you well know. It, it, there isn't a healing from, you know, something that has gone wrong with you. There is a journey. There's a process. There is a, um, you know, it, it's like I say, you never get, you don't get over it, but you do get on with it. And you, you learn to walk first, my mother would describe this, step by step. And first, it's like taking a step in the mud, and you can barely lift your foot out. But, you know, you, you, you learn to live anew each day, and you take step by step by step, 
your life's journey. But going forward, it's, a, it's what they literally describe as a watershed experience. These are those moments in your life. A watershed is like the peak of a roof of a house that makes, you know, everything goes one direction when the rain hits it. On one side of the house, it goes one direction. On the other side, it goes on the other side. It goes another direction. This is a peak experience in life where after that, nothing is the same. Everything is different and going in a different direction. And I was, you know, forever changed by this. And nobody can understand that as well as another murder victim's family member. It is not at all surprising to me. I was just doing our Christmas card list for this year. You know, it's all our, some of our best friends were all murder victims, family members. We get each other. When I met Bill at this conference for murder victims in Boston College in 2001, it was a conference called Healing the Wounds of Murder. And he had just written his book, What to Do When the Police Leave, A Guide to the First Days of Traumatic Loss, which is an amazing book. And I, um, you know, he was invited to speak. He and I were on a panel together, um, you know, um, it, it, it was truly uh, an amazing journey to find, you know, just to connect to somebody who we get each other. We just we we get each other. And this this actually happens a lot. And you see this you see marriages break up after murders, too, because, you know, one spouse wants to just quietly and stoically go on and the other one is falling apart, you know, and it's it, it's not. Um, it, it's a relationship destroyer for sure, as as much as it is a new relationship builder. But from for Bill and I, you know, activism has been therapeutic, no doubt. Being able to help other people, that has been, you know, that's a way to be able to keep Nancy, who she was, the loving person, this person that would leave this message of love in her blood. She gets the last word. She said, love you, the last second of her life with the last ounce of life in her body. And that is what I am going to devote myself to. I'm focused on being that love in the world. And so that has led me to work um, with uh, the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence. It has led me to work with, um, to work against the death penalty, to work against killing again, not saying I'm against life without parole. I'm against the death penalty because I don't believe that more killing says that killing is wrong. If we say that killing is wrong, then we can't kill. And I know people can, can disagree in good conscience on this issue. But it has led me to do um, you know, work, most importantly, for victims' rights, uh, which is my work with Marcy's Law. And uh, Marcy's Law is an amazing movement that has been around um, for a good long time, and I, I want to give the website out if you don't mind. It's marcyslaw.us, M-A-R-S as in Sam, Y-S as in Sam, law, marcyslaw.us, um, is uh, already passed in you know a, a significant percentage of states. More than half of Americans are living now under Marcy's Law rights. This was a California murder case. Um, Dr. Henry Nicholas's sister, Marcy, was uh, was murdered, and he has done this in in her name. And it's been an amazing thing to be a part of to help crime victims to know more about what happens in their case, uh, to have enforceable rights in their case, the right to be present, to be notified, um, to consult with the prosecutors, to receive restitution, to be kept safe during the process, um, uh, to be able to make statements. All of these things 
our family was denied the right to make a statement. At the time of his sentencing, the life without parole sentence that David Biro got, um, they, you know, the court was busy that day. I actually, you know, we had waited two years for him to be sentenced and for the trial and the sentencing to be over. And when the day came that we were to go to court, to, and, you know, we'd written our victim impact statements. We were ready to do this. We wanted to do this. And we got this phone call. Well, you know, it's two mandatory life sentences. The court is really busy today, so we're not going to be taking any statements. Oh, that's... It was, it was like, what? The least they you know? can do is let you speak your piece. Yeah. Well, but we got the... I got the call, don't come. We won't be taking your statement. Oh. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so... And I didn't even know at that time that that was a violation of Illinois' very weak victims' rights constitutional amendment. And so I got to work with Marcy's Law, uh, got to know about them and got to work with them. And they helped us pass a new, stronger uh, uh, law for victims' rights that's not voluntary compliance. Because the previous one, the wording of it was just a voluntary compliance thing. And now we have in Illinois and in, and you know, like of more than I think it's about 40% of the states now have Marcy's law, which is enforceable. If they violate your rights as a victim, the, then, then they have to fix it. They have to, you know, they have to judicially fix that violation. So it is, um, it's been a, a really rewarding thing to do this work at Bill's side. Bill is still out educating. He's a college professor and he's out educating and speaking and teaching to victim advocates, training them with his book. He, um, he, you know, it's been very, very meaningful to go out and do work to help prevent violence and to help other crime victims. That's been primarily the two focuses of our work is to prevent more people from being victimized and more people from being murdered. And, you know, gun violence prevention, that is the biggest thing. America is insane on the gun issue. No other country in the world, no other country in the world does what we do on guns. It is nuts here how many people are dying because of just random shootings. And we've just gotten used to it. And we think that this is normal. And in other countries, this does not happen. What we have here is insane. We've had over uh, a million, 1.2 million people that have died uh, from gun violence in this country since um, the late 60s and Dr. King's assassination. It was, it's just insane what we have here. So that's a really obvious no-brainer is to try to do like what other countries do and more carefully regulate who can get guns. And um, I'm not saying ban them. I'm just saying, you know, what other countries do, which is regulate them and regulate them in a responsible manner. So there's been that work, and then there's been the work to help other victims. We've uh, involved with wonderful groups like Parents Who Murdered Children and Murder Victims Families for Human Rights. And um, and then we just uh, go out and keep telling our stories and keep helping people to um, learn how to take a step and the next step and the next step. And you keep going. And I'm, I'm always amazed when I see someone that has a tragic event like this and they somehow find a way to do something positive with it. And I think all that stuff you're doing really honors your your uh, family's memories. And, you know, I'm sure that Nancy and, and Richard would be proud of you and, and what you've done. Thank you. I really 
I, I, I feel like I, you know, it's, it's different losing a sibling. Like my husband's, he lost his firstborn namesake son. And, you know, his grief is very different than mine. I, I don't even compare them. You know, he's, it's much more paralyzing what he has to deal with. Um, but for me, I feel like as a, as the older sister of, you know, like losing a sibling, it's kind of like, like now I have the years that she didn't have. I've got the children that she didn't have. I've got the happily ever after in a marriage that she didn't have. I've got days and time and years that she doesn't have. And so with that, I, 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 it's, it, I can't not live it in a way that honors her, that, that tries to do something with what we lost when we lost Nancy Bishop Langer. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and discussing what happened and uh, what you've gone through and, and where you stand now and, and the help you've done for other people. It's it's admirable. And, and every time I have someone on like you that's found a way to help others, you know, that's something that I, I'm really honored to have people like that on my show. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for sharing with us. Oh, thank you, Mike, so much for what you do. And I hope that everybody who is a murder victim's family member will reach out to organizations like Parents of Murdered Children and uh, other um, and other groups. And, you know, and just, uh, you know, find, uh, you know, reach out to Marcy's Law if you, have, um, if you want to work with victims' rights and, um, you know, find other victims like us to connect to because we are, we're, you know, we, we derive tremendous um, healing from, and I use that word, but that it is healing to be in life relationships with people who uh, are, you know, have had these similar devastation. And as soon as you find that out about somebody, oh yeah, they've had a murder too. Then you, you know, it's like, oh wow, we instantly get each other. So th there, there is a great deal of positive connection to be found by, you know, by reaching out to other people like you. Again, thank you, and uh, we'll definitely, you know, put some things in in the show notes where people can find uh, help and advice and and try and get through whatever they're going through. Thank you, Mike. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.